worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. We can't tell you how excited we are to bring to you this phenomenal high-yield installment of our heart failure series. As we have been learning, the management of heart failure is complex and really warrants a multidisciplinary team of specialists to do the best for our patients. Today, we have the true honor of learning from Dr. Jeffrey Moses of Columbia University on the ever-growing role of interventional cardiology in the management of these complex patients. Now, Dr. Moses is truly a trailblazer in the field and certainly does not require an introduction, but Dan will introduce him properly when he joins us shortly. In addition to Dr. Moses, we are also privileged and honored to have a rising star guest on our show today, introducing my co-fellow, Dr. Jackie Latina. Dr. Jackie Latina was born and raised in the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts, and is a graduate of Princeton University, majoring in chemistry. She earned her MD at Tufts University School of Medicine. Her internship and internal medicine residency was completed at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, where she stayed on for an American Heart Association postdoc research fellowship. She completed a master's in clinical research methods at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health during that time, and she's currently a cardiology fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and will start Interventional Cardiology Fellowship in June of 2020 with me. Woo! Woo (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) She is a real friend and such a tremendous advocate for everyone in the hospital, including all patients and staff. I admire her so much for that quality. Jackie, welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you so much for having me, Dan, Amit. This program, I just want to say kudos for developing this Cardio Nerds podcast. This is amazing. Before we dive in, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. My fellow cardio nerds, we are in for a real treat today as Jackie Latina, Dan, and I discuss the growing role of the interventional cardiologist in the management of heart failure patients with none other than the Dr. Jeffrey Moses. I had the pleasure of listening to Dr. Moses teach at the Northwell Cardiovascular Fellows course in Las Vegas and just couldn't stop dreaming of having him on the show. I sheepishly approached him between lectures with an impromptu but heartfelt invitation, and instead of brushing me off, he gladly accepted, just showing off his dedication to both the field and medical education. Now, we all know about and look up to Dr. Moses, but Dan, would you do the honors? Absolutely. Of course, Ahmed. I remember you texting me while you were in Vegas and how excited you were to approach Dr. Moses. Dr. Moses, I want to echo Ahmed's sentiments about how much of an incredible honor it is to have you joining us today. For our listeners, Dr. Jeffrey Moses is a professor of medicine and director of interventional cardiovascular therapeutics at Columbia University Medical Center and director of advanced cardiac interventions at St. Francis Hospital and Heart Center. He is also the associate director of the transcatheter cardiovascular Therapeutics, which we all know as the famed TCT conference. He is truly a leader in the field with over 600 publications. He has been a lead investigator in truly practice changing studies, including one in 2002, which led the FDA approval to drug eluding stents. 
He is also on the executive committee of the Partner Trials, and he is referenced in our Aortic Stenosis series way back at the beginning of our show in episodes one and two. This is a sampling of his innumerable accomplishments. Dr. Moses, we cannot thank you enough for your time today. Oh, it's uh, wonderful to be here. And I just congratulate the three of you in putting this together. It's very innovative and uh, you're doing a real service to, to the whole field, including your peers. So I'm just happy to help. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Moses. To preface our discussion, guideline-directed medical therapy in March 2020 involves primarily medical management and electrical device therapy, including ICD and CRT. Today, we will discuss the growing role of interventional cardiology in the heart failure population. Coronary disease is the most common cause of heart failure, and valvular disease may be both a cause of or a result of heart failure, and often is both. Advances in interventional cardiology are increasingly empowering us to address many of these problems percutaneously. So let's first tackle ischemic cardiomyopathy. There's a substantial portion of patients with complex coronary disease who are told that they have no revascularization options with traditional techniques, either percutaneous or surgical. Many providers have not heard of CHIP or do not have access to CHIP operators locally. So how do you define CHIP or, for our listeners, complex high-risk percutaneous coronary intervention? And how do you know if a given patient with ischemic cardiomyopathy could potentially derive benefit from such a high-risk intervention? Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting how you frame that because, you know, when we sort of came up with the CHIP concept, it was really focused on a lot of my practice where people were just being told that there are just no options. You know, you, you just have to live with your symptoms and until you die. And we really, when we sort of dissected it out, it was really a combination. It's obviously some technically challenging lesion subsets, whether it's cal- you know, left mains, calcific bifurcations, total occlusions. Mm-hmm. But it's also the substrate of the patients, whether it be their comorbidities, whether it's pulmonary disease, very frequently chronic kidney disease, hematologic challenges, et cetera. Right. And of course, their hemodynamics, especially those with the, in this case, we're talking about ischemic cardiomyopathy, those with the compromised left ventricular function. Now, the good news is we have some predicate in that the STITCH trial, which ex- was extended to stitches, really gave the first you know, uh, evidence base that revascularization actually made a difference in in heart failure and in chronic coronary disease. Now, we obviously don't have the, the, the randomized trial yet, you know, in the percutaneous space, but the analogy that we use in terms of the revascularization in no option patients is to shift them from surgery to, um, to PCI since so many of these patients, and frankly, I think an increasing number are being denied surgery because of the surgeon's concerns, but the surgeons are becoming more and more risk adverse and just landing these people in our in our uh, labs. Um, right. Parenthetically, I think there is a randomized trial, you know, in, in the in the UK where they are specifically addressing this guideline therapy versus PCI. So we will have beyond extrapolating from you know from Stitch, we will have some uh, evidence base directly at, uh, pertaining to uh, PCI. We do have the Optimum trial, which was specifically surgical turndowns. And it was an 800 patient registry. But the good news is they also included a, a group of uh, hospitals that really were not CHIP hospitals that presumably would give these most of these patients optimal medical therapy. So we're hoping we can do some sort of matching and really get at least a sense of, A, the outcomes of this CHIP population of surgical turndowns, you know, prospectively in terms of, you know, obviously hard outcomes and quality of life, but also see 
uh, get some intimations about benefits uh, compared to medical therapy in the non, you know, in the non-treated subgroup that we're also going to be tracking in the registry. You know, in terms of the specifics, you know, the questions of, you know, we traditionally do viability testing, though when you really look at that objectively, it's not clear that viability testing should really exclude patients from revascularization. Um, it just means that you get more bang for your buck when you do have viability. But, uh, but it's a work in progress. I agree. In practice, it, it always seems so tempting and uh, rational to use not just the anatomic information, but also viability and function testing to help understand which patients would benefit most. But it seems like the data is not 100% solid in using that to actually guide management for these patients. And why do you think that is, Dr. Moses? Well, I think part of it is, um, I think part of it is just the tolerance for future events i.e., you know, you can revascularize a vessel that attends a large amount of scar, but if there's a contralateral a problem, you still have a col- potential collateral donor. And uh, it may even have a benefit even in terms of, uh, you know, some remodeling that we don't understand or even the electrical remodeling. You know, one thing I've learned in my career is that things you're dead bang certain about years later turn out to be totally wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm seriously. I mean, things that, things that were malpractice when I was training are now embedded in the guidelines. I'm not, and I'm not exaggerating that. So, oh, um, that's so funny. So you just got to really keep an open mind, you know, as you go forward in this field. And it's kind of, it makes it fun because it's nice to think about how dumb you were, you know, 10 years ago about certain <laughs> <laughs> signs of progress. Um, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that we all love about cardiology is how codependent progress is within the different divisions. And I think one of the reasons that we're able to improve our capability for chip operations and procedures is simply our capability for mechanical support devices has improved. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what what have temporary mechanical support devices, uh, how do they modify this risk-benefit equation in these high-risk procedures? And how do you decide if support is needed? And when indicated, what is your preferred strategy? Yeah, no, that, those are all, you know, those are all great questions. I think myocardial support has been, I think, a huge advance in allowing us to actually treat these complex lesions without feeling that you're walking a, you know, a tightrope with every, you know, with every moment of intervention. So you can really concentrate on the patient and also concentrate on optimal revascularization strategies, which sometimes obviously take more time, especially if you're using, you know, advanced imaging techniques or other hemodynamic assessments. So it, it it gives you that luxury. And, I, you know, I go back to probably you don't know what this is called CPS, cardiopulmonary support, which was really <laughs> And we used to right. do that. And, the out, and you can look back on that from, you know, Bill O'Neill, Paul Tierstein, I was part of it. And the outcomes were terrible. And more importantly, mm. we could not anticipate who would actually benefit from it prophylactically. Mm. So that went by the wayside. But then, and of course, Tandem Heart, we did a bit of it too. But I think the Impella, because of its simplicity and ease of use, and its direct unloading of the ventricle really has been, you know, the most robust uh, technology. And it's really given us a, a leg up on really tackling some of these people who get here. If they're not shaky from the start, they can get very wobbly while you're intervening. And, uh, mm. you know, the, and you can't and you can't cut and run on these people. I mean, there's no hit and run. And we've learned <laughs> we've learned on that. If you just go in and just do something, you're really doing nothing. You know, we know incomplete revascularization. Uh, we certainly learned this from Protect. It really is, uh, you're doing the patient more of a disservice than a service. Um, in terms of when, I mean, I have my own algorithm. Um, I really ask a series of questions. Key one is what's the baseline hemodynamic 
status and do they have any reserve? Mm-hmm. There's a difference between someone with a you know a wedge of 12, a cardiac index of three, you know, systolic blood pressure of 130 compared to the patient with a, a PA pressure of 60, a wedge of 24, and a systolic of 90. You can you know intuitively know that any perturbation of blood flow or any ischemic insult is going to uh, have vastly different consequences for those two patients. So it's the Very latter that reserve. I really focus on. Yeah, but the other part of it is what's the risk of my causing really interrupting blood flow? That's obvious, obviously, with the last remaining vessel, but um, but even, you know, more complex uh, lesions when it's not the last remaining vessel and these patients with compromised function, of course, you interrupt the blood flow and it can happen. I mean, you have a you know thrombotic lesion, difficult wiring, the antecedent dissection from a previous intervention uh, attempt, which is not infrequent in our world. Um, you really want to think about that too, which is why I never really was in favor. Once, the, for instance, the CP came out, I very, very rarely used the two five because I was always thinking in terms of the consequences of a catastrophic event, and I always felt you know the CP obviously gave you a lot more headroom if you know if that eventuality came to pass. Right. So th- those are sort of my main considerations for these uh, you know for the use of hemodynamic support. I imagine that the concept of single-axis PCI with the femoral impella also improves that risk-benefit equation just by reducing the amount of access needed. Oh, yeah. We love I mean, since we've – the only thing I don't like about it is I didn't think of it. Um, <laughs> but, That's good. But uh, – I mean, it's not something you would intuitively think about, but I congratulate the guys who, who started this and you were know, doing the bench testing. But that's really, at Columbia, I can tell you that's virtually all we do. I mean, it's rare that you need anything bigger than the seven fringe guide. Um, and, and I'll tell you, it's also very helpful, for instance, our CTOs, our high-risk CTOs, because now right, you can have, right, du- right. You know, you have dual access. Mm. You, know, you can have a radial and ephemeral and really, uh, and really have a lot more flexibility. So I, yeah. I, I think I'm a big fan. And I think we've done... I think about 30, 35 of them so far here at Columbia with, with great results. Fantastic. All right. Let's move on to valvular heart disease, starting yeah. with aortic stenosis. There's yeah. an important overlap, obviously, between aortic stenosis and heart failure, and they both share a lot of common risk factors. We're learning more and more about that as the years go on. Uh, just a plug for our initial episodes. If you haven't heard our aortic stenosis episodes, we review it and discuss tons about aortic stenosis pathophysiology. And we take a crack out of making sense of gradients, velocities, and the different flavors mm-hmm. of AS. But uh, with regards to heart failure specifically, what data is there on TAVR patients with low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or paradoxical low flow gradient with aortic stenosis with preserved ejection fraction? And how does TAVR compare to SAVR here? And do we get the same benefits as patients with typical high gradients? That's about seven questions. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. By the way, Ahmed wrote these questions. <laughs> no, it's fine. All right. But no, but, but let, let's segregate it out because, you know, the, the low flow gradient really started with the concept of LV dysfunction. That was all the original descriptions. And they had very variable results with, with surgery. And, uh, and the concept of myocardial reserve in terms of uh, determining who would benefit from it came from the surgical literature. As it turns out, it's not really clear that that's a big discriminator in the, uh, even though it makes intuitive sense in the TAVR world. And as you can see in the latest data really don't, don't support that. Uh, the real challenge though is, you know, separating out pseudo AS from, from actual AS. Mm-hmm. And I think we got, we got more sophisticated you know, with the use of hemodynamic perturbations, but not simply looking at reserve, but really looking at the 
you know, extrapolating the uh, the actual flow to a normal flow from a series of, you know, a series of steps in terms of uh, increasing cardiac output. And I think Howie Herman has done a great job in using that as a predictor of a proper outcome. Um, and I, I think I'd rather use that, whether it's with nitride or whether with, uh, with dabutamine, I think that's very, very helpful. And it seems that even if you do do a TAV or even if you don't, quote, have reserve in terms of output, you do seem to have a benefit. For me, the, the most difficult one and the complex one is those with preserved ejection fraction. And, you know, the, you know who these are. These are with a concentric hypertrophy, frequently right, very right. little ladies, mm-hmm. you know, and they have low gradients and, and they're very difficult to dissect. And you can't just, you know, certainly can't rely on the echo. And... Um, there, I think, you know, calcium scoring, direct visualization of the valve all add up. Though I do think we rely more and more heavily on the calcium cutoffs uh, for separating these out. Oh, uh, my problem with it, though, is, you know, let's face it, when you use the echo alone, miter changes, you know, your outflow uh, measurements can make big changes in terms of the valve area. And so I, mm. I hate to rely just on echo in that regard. The good news is, though, I think that when you compare it to surgical outcomes. And, you know, the surgical outcomes in both these groups have been very high risk. And in the partner day, the, the earlier outcomes, certainly with low flow, low grade, seem to be superior with TAVR versus surgery. In terms of long term, they do seem to do not as well as high gradient AS, but there's, a, you know, there seem to be a more benefit as, uh, compared to uh, a surgical approach. Wow, that was such an illuminating response. And, you know, gee, I wonder who wrote the questions. <laughs> Did I get them all? I don't know. You got them all. Oh, it's probably, okay. well, you know, the it's story. A, it's of- a great. It's a great area. I mean, it's a great area. But you know, honestly, it's also an area you know where there can be a little abuse. You shouldn't just jump on the low grade. Now you got a valvier from Echo. It's point seven. You know, with an EF of forty five. Look very carefully at that patient. Don't just yeah. jump in and put a valve in. I mean, I use the ancillary support. I think that's very important. And I know right. we do that very vigorously at Columbia. The echocardiographer and the planimetry and the calcium scoring, I think, are really important. And you can do all these other manipulations. My pride is helpful as well. So, I, I, you know, get confirmation. Just don't take one measurement. I, I still remember when I was a first-year fellow in the cath lab, Jonathan White, one of our structural attendings at Cleveland well, sure. Clinic, He's and it's now us. in yeah, and now in high. oh, that's right, actually. I, I don't <laughs> yeah, remember Jonathan's terrific. <laughs> Small world in structural yeah. cardiology, but, but he <laughs> yeah. taught me. I remember he said, "Now Amit, if you if the gradients invasive gradients aren't as high as you were expecting, there are three uh, maneuvers that you have up your sleeve. One is fluid loading, right? Because if you have a low preload, you're going to have low gradients. Two is dibutamine, and three is nipride. Because if you're hyper Intensive, you diminish the gradient. So I just, yeah. that always stuck with me and you're reminding me of his teaching right now. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> well, cool. this, the story of Taver has really been one of the most impressive success stories in medicine from the mm-hmm. first inhuman procedure with Alain Clivia in 2002. <laughs> and I had to practice that <laughs> all, all the way through the, the recent partner three and, and evolute low risk trials. And, you know, I've really seen the, the role of Taver expand from the inoperable to the low risk patients during my own training. And this is really part of the reason I want to pursue interventional instructional cardiology, because it's just so amazing. But what do you think that the next frontiers are in terms of indications? For instance, you know, what is the future for patients who are asymptomatic with severe aortic stenosis, Mm -hmm. or even moderate aortic stenosis, or 
bicuspid aortic valves, et cetera. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the, these are areas of very active investigation. Obviously, bicuspids, you know, there's no randomized data, but obviously there's a lot of encouraging data when you, if you use, you know, the trileaflet valves as your predicate, we are, we're getting, you know, comparatively very good outcomes. That's with very careful selection in terms of calcium distribution, and the, you know, with, in the RAFI, and also in terms of, you know, careful measurements of, uh, you know, of the valve size and also interprocedural cautions like balloon sizing and the like to avoid, you know, because to avoid rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the concomitant aortopathy presents a challenge, especially when you're getting into younger patients. And I think you have, you need to take that into account and be circumspect on that because, you know, you're having the beginning of aortic dilatation with the bicuspid valve in a younger, I'm talking about, you know, people in their 50s and 60s. I'm not sure they're ready for TAVR yet. Um, but I do think certainly in the older population, we've made huge progress and, and have a much better understanding, though there's still a lot to be resolved and there's still a lot of controversy. I think, you know, we have early TAVR. You know, there is an asymptomatic trial that is underway, you know, randomized, making sure people are truly asymptomatic, especially with, you know, not just careful questioning, but stress testing, right. I think is a key discriminator. And we will have answers on that. And I think, you know, even now looking at some of the surgical data, and comparative data in the asymptomatic population and how that seems to favor favor intervention, I don't think there'll be much question that will be uh, at the outcome of that trial. I don't think there'll be much question that you'll find benefit with uh, TAVR. But, you know, we're, we have that. And then the other indication, of course, is in, you know, moderate AS in TAVR unload with the LV dysfunction and the idea of using the valve as another unloading method in people with LB dysfunction and early TAVR is again recruiting. It's underway. It's sort of in the, you know, not quite in the middle. And I think that obviously conceptually could be a radical change in our approach to a heart failure if you're, you know, if you're doing patients with a moderate aortic stenosis. One other thing I'll come up, you know, with the recent data looking at the prognosis of moderate AS and comparing it to severe AS, as we resolve these questions, that may be the next frontier. I don't know what you would call that, super early TAVR. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, these will be really interesting. But, you know, daylight savings time TAVR, whatever. Right? But, it, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, but I mean, that's these, you know, these epidemiologic studies now looking at the outcomes with moderate may, you know, we'll see. I mean, let's get these things settled. And over the next few years, we will be having answers to these. You know, obviously, that can, that would be a real paradigm shift from our approach to aortic valve disease, if we're not really discriminating on the basis of symptoms or even necessarily on the severity of the valve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. This used to be really interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, Dr. Moses. And it's just, you know, it's been really amazing to see the story of TAVR and our approach to aortic stenosis unfold over the course just of our own training. But let's push aside that aortomitral curtain and move to the mitral valve. Because that's just another success story unraveling before us is that of the secondary or functional mitral regurgitation. Now, of course, FMR or functional mitral regurgitation often results from maladaptive remodeling in a dilated ventricle or from an ischemic wall causing uh, leaflet tethering. It further contributes, of course, to volume overload, progressive LV dysfunction, and is associated with worse outcomes, including mortality. Where do we stand now on the structural management of functional mitral regurgitation and heart failure? And what are some of the percutaneous strategies people are using? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the success of the COAP study, I think, stunned all of us. Greg Stone's office was literally seven feet away from me mm-hmm. in our little suite here. And, you know, this was a 
an incredible journey. And I remember him tearing his hair out. He, he did, he had hair back then. And, um, <laughs> and he, you know, just trying to get the enrollment uh, going. And, and I congratulate all of those involved in that study. I mean, they persisted and really created a landmark in medicine, not just in interventional medicine. I think the, you know, percutaneous clips obviously have really performed, uh, I think, brilliantly. Obviously, there's controversy because of the Mitra mm-hmm. FR and, you know, there are evolving concepts of, you know, of disproportionate MR, proportionate MR based on the, say, the LV volume using whatever measurements you want to do, whether it's a gurgeon, a fraction or orifice area. Um, but I, I say you should read Becky Hahn just had a recent editorial in JAMA Cardiology. She shows that that concept isn't quite that simple. For me, the lesson from COAPT is so many of the patients fell out with guideline therapy, with appropriate therapy. And remember, so this was a distilled group of patients that were refractory to medicine. And consequently, when you take that subgroup, I think that's where you see the benefit. If you dilute it out with individuals who will actually respond to medication, you know, you're going to see the medication response in both groups. Uh, which you shouldn't because you should have exhausted medicine before you went to the clip. And I think that accounts for some of the differences. But I think the clip now is the standard. And given its, I'm not saying simplicity, but the simplicity of the approach, in other words, a large venous access, but nonetheless venous access, I think that is the standard that all these subsequent technologies are just going to have to match. Obviously, there were anatomic limitations to the clips, though they're adapting them to different anatomies right now. And uh, the valve replacements obviously have a, uh, you know, have a ways to go in terms of the robustness of anatomic sets that it can be applied to. But obviously, we have, you know, we have annuloplasties varieties, we have neocords, we have ventricular remodeling devices, and of course, uh, uh, valves up until now, they've been mainly transapical which I think is a non-starter given the success of the clip. But I think we are embarking on some of the uh, transeptals, which, you know, are proving to be a bit of a challenge, but uh, we'll see where they go. But one thing I'll say, you know, you talk about TAVR. I mean, I look back at some of my slides before I even came to Columbia. We were, you know, we were involved in the TAVR from it's literally its outset. And I look at my slides and I had sort of all these mitral devices, these aortic devices on my slide deck. And this I'm talking about from, you know, maybe 2003. And I realized that we're still talking about the mitrals in more or less the same (laughs) manner. And TAVR, as we know, has just, you know, transformed, uh, you know, has transformed that approach to that entire disease state. It's been a slow go on that. I think we're in high school. It really puts the challenges of the mitral valve in perspective. Yep. Yeah. 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 You know, well, Marty has a great slide where he sort of has, you know, TAVR, which is, you know, when some it's sort of like just someone on a, you know, on a bicycle, and then you have, uh, you know, mitral, and you have a cockpit of a, you know, a seven seven seven. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Dr. Uh, Dr. Moses, you literally uh, caught uh, two of our follow-up questions and even our backup oh. follow-up question with that oh, okay. really great answer. So uh, I'll turn over the next question to Jackie. Sure. Oh. Yeah. So what about the, uh, quote, forgotten valve, i.e. the tricuspid valve? You know, the most common type of tricuspid regurgitation is functional or secondary TR. And we know the functional TR is associated with terrible outcomes. Prognosis for isolated TR surgery is unfortunately dismal. So what are the challenges specific to percutaneous management of TR? And what are some of the device options? And do you think this will play a growing role in the management of heart failure patients? 
Yeah, well, I think, look, I mean, I think no one has thought much about tricuspid regurgitation except for, you know, diuretics. And <laughs> yes. uh, that's evidenced by the incredible scarcity of, you know, tricuspid valve operations. And more more importantly, the vast majority of them, of course, you know, concomitant with, you know, with the left-sided procedures, most often of, of mitral repair or replacement. So what we're seeing, the first iterations of this, we're seeing, they had to literally invent new categories of regurgitation to torrential right <laughs> because you know because severe tr is you know we rarely get those ordinary severe ones i mean you have eroas of eight i mean it's Jeez. it's uh it, it's ex- extraordinary and you know and these patients suffer besides the, the you know the liver failure the factory edema the fatigue the low output and you know there's been some you know modest success interestingly you know the clip is being adapted for that and being used for that uh, both the, the pascal and of course the mitra clip and there's, you know, randomized trial underway now uh, approaching that. Uh, so I think, you know, we will we will be getting uh, data for that. But I think for these really these really dilated ones, these really huge ones, I do believe, you know, despite all the jerry-rig stuff we did with putting valves in these SVC and IBC <laughs> or the Forma and just, you know, coaptation devices, I think it's going to be for those, I think it's going to be a valve. That's, I think, going to be the solution to these really severe ones. Obviously, in the long run, and I think you'll see this, like we saw with AS, people are much more, you know, vigorous now in pursuing and, and identifying aortic stenosis, especially in populations that were prior not even considered for any interventions as, you know, as TAVR became safer. I think you'll see that with the tricuspids as they evolve, almost hopefully as disease awareness comes to bear. Um, we'll see earlier and earlier in the disease state approaches uh, to the interventionalist, seeing if there's uh, solutions that we can provide. And so I think it's a huge growth area. I mean, it's one of those things is that we're starting, you know, we're really starting to see referrals for it and maybe earlier in the disease. I think those are going to be the, the two principal uh, methods uh, that we're going to be dealing with. And, you know, and you think about it on the tricuspid side, it's a lot simpler than the mitral side in terms of while the devices are large and just in terms of uh, just being able to access the valve, I think it's just you know, much simpler. And you may even see more wider success with the tricuspid valve replacements faster than you might see in the percutaneous mitrals. We'll, we'll see mm. where that goes. Mm. Okay. Uh, but in, an interesting sack, though, keep in mind, you know, what we a big la- a lack of understanding is, you know, plug these leaks, dysfunctional right ventricles. Sometimes these people do not enjoy it, and we've yeah. had some. Right. Uh, you know, we've had you know these people cut, frequently come out on pressers, and some of them, you know, w- you know, some of them we cross the line and obviously intervene too late in the cycle for uh, right ventricular dysfunction. So we really have a lot to learn on that, and of course, the real answer is that let's get to these patients earlier in their disease process. Right. It's very interesting for transcatheter valvular interventions. We've uh, it's simultaneously been such a success story, but at the same time, we've just begun to scratch the surface. And it'll be very interesting to see how things go with things like the Carillon study in the mitral side and mm-hmm. the triluminate study looking at the clip device on the tricuspid side. Yeah. So I really appreciate you going over transcatheter valvular interventions. But let's uh, let's move on to interatrial shunt devices. So uh-huh. What are your thoughts about these interatrial shunt devices in heart failure? For our listeners, the strategy is founded on this idea that the elevated left-sided filling pressures in heart failure result, of course, in pulmonary edema, the sensation of dyspnea and exertional limitation, really causing a lot of the functional limitations in our patients. And the idea of these devices are quite straightforward. They simply create a hole in the atrial septum, resulting in interatrial 
vehicle left to right shunting, offloading the left atrium. I think, you know, it's a fascinating concept. Obviously, we have some early data indicating uh, some benefit. For me, the excitement is more in terms of, you know, the half path where we have nothing. (laughs) And, uh, and, and intuitively, you know, when you look at the half path and you look at the, you know, the, the steep curve of left atrial pressure rises with just with exertion, literally, uh, you know, it's like a wall in Yosemite. I mean, it just rises intuitively. It makes sense to me. And obviously we have some, you know, some, some blinded data, some registry data. And now of course we have two trials addressing both preserved and of course reduced ejection fraction one, just exclusively preserved ejection fraction. So I'm really excited. I, you know, I think they've learned a lot over the last few years, and uh, there are at least four devices that I'm aware of and concepts that are uh, that are doing this. And uh, I think it'll be a very exciting area for the interventionalists, especially I think, as I said, in the half peps. That is an extraordinary challenge with with abysmal prognosis, and um, I'm pretty optimistic with that. I think the early data had been, you know, well designed, physiologically worked out, and uh, and you know we have some sham control data also supporting it. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Moses. So uh, you're looking at three bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, budding interventional structuralists, and we just uh, would love to get your advice and pick your brain on how you see the field is going. We've talked about a lot of different strategies and options that are coming in the future, but since you've seen the long haul, could you give us an idea of where you see the field going? Well, I mean, the science is robust. Let's be honest. What we've learned about surgical valve intervention has been predominantly because they were predicates for our randomized interventional trials. And the surgeons never had these well-characterized clinical outcome echocardiographic studies. Let's face it, the whole field of valvular heart treatment was based on Kaplan-Meier curves coming out of the great centers and looking at freedom from re-intervention without much, without much other data. So I think, you know, we've certainly brought the science forward on, on both sides. We've learned a lot. But I think for me, the key message here and in terms of just where the interventionalist sits in the whole array of caregivers. And up until now, if you really think about it, we've been sort of nice to have. I mean, we have to sit around and wait for, you know, the cardiologist to call us or, you know, the surgeon to turn down the patient or something along those lines or, you know, someone getting a a stress test uh, at a general cardiologist's office, and then uh, maybe they'll refer them for a cath. It's up to their decision. But the point is, is that if you just go over many of the things that we have just reviewed, for instance, mitral regurgitation or TAVR, or we could extend it even to say PCI for left main disease, et cetera, we save lives. (laughs) So it should not be optional. In other words, if someone has aortic stenosis, it shouldn't be up to anybody whether they see the interventionalist. Interventionalists should be mandated to be consulted. The same thing when you have mitral regurgitation after optimal medical therapy. It should not be a discretion. It should be mandated as part of the heart team. You know, we're not just nice to have because we're less invasive. We're moving into a field where we do save lives. And I think that has not yet been recognized in the guidelines or you know, even in, in the structure of how patients are brought through the system. So I think it's going to be up to you guys to promulgate that message. And the way you do it is obviously um, with more robust data and, and, and really changing the guidelines and getting us into the forefront of the care of the patient. 
You know, Dr. Moses, I, I love that you just went over this idea of when an interventional cardiologist should really be involved, because it's so the core of why we're doing this episode. This is part of our heart failure awareness series. And the reason we thought to take such a whirlwind tour of all the ways that an interventionalist can help people with this disease, the reason really is so that our practicing providers out there taking care of heart failure patients know when to call their local Dr. Moses and ask for help. So this is really helpful from our perspective. No, I think you're right on. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to each other in the interventional field about all these great devices, but we should also be, you know, at heart failure meetings, at, you know, American College of Physicians. I mean, we do not have a robust representation in the in, in some of these areas. And, and, and honestly, it's exciting for some of these more general, you know, practitioners to really uh, understand what we're doing. Um, but, uh, and they, they, they embrace it very frequently. They're just not exposed to it. Oh, thank you, Dr. Moses. So in general, we have been concluding our interviews where we ask the person we're interviewing, well, what makes them get jazzed up about going to work? So <laughs> Dr. Moses, what makes your heart flutter? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, two things. It's my working with my colleagues. And when I talk about my colleagues, I also mean, obviously, the fellows. I mean, we're in the trenches together here. And fortunately, at Columbia, I get to work with really some of the smartest people I've ever met. And I'm not talking about my peers. I'm talking about my, my fellows. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the resources and talent and commitment and dedication that they have. And I just admire them. And I'm thrilled that they feel that my mentoring is of value. And that's huge. And the other part of it is, of course, my family which is sort of along the same lines. I mean, my kids are now in their 20s and 30s, and I'm watching them grow and develop into you know, great human beings and contributors to, to the community. It's sort of this, you know, the same feeling on both ends, really promulgating my sensibility and knowledge and values to the next generation. And, and every day, that's, you know, that's, that's really the fun part. And also having a few drinks with these guys, too. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, 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 you know, well count you. us in for the next happy hour, Dr. Moses. <laughs> <laughs> People come up to New York. So, you know, this uh, totally wide and all-encompassing discussion on this episode really embodies everything we love about interventional cardiology and just cardiology in general, but the growing ability to take a sick patient and make their life better using advanced diagnostics and including multimodality imaging, invasive testing, along with a rapidly growing arsenal of devices and techniques. So thank you so much for your time. No, it's been a real pleasure, guys. And anytime you want me to revisit, I'll be happy to. Oh. We'll take you up on that. We definitely <laughs> okay. will. And thanks for the cardio nerds for inviting me on the show. <laughs> and a very special thanks to Dr. Moses for inspiring me and making us really excited to be tomorrow's interventional cardiologist. So we'll be uh, coming your way in 2022. Okay. <laughs> well, bye-bye now. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Beep. Beep.